This is Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, the channelnomics podcast that connects you with channel chiefs, thought leaders, and executives about what it takes to get the next generation of tech to market. Here's your host, Larry Walsh, the CEO and Chief Analyst of Channelnomics. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Changing Channels. I'm Larry Walsh. I've been talking about cloud computing for as long as I can remember, um, at least 20 years or so. And I remember back when cloud was just starting to take off uh, and people had a lot of questions about its utility and its value and its future. That was more than a decade ago. And to say today that the cloud is mainstream is a bit passe. Uh, Cloud continues to grow at double digit rates. Uh, but it really is at the corner of everything that is being done in technology today. Uh, not only do you have the big providers that are dominating the technology landscape, but you have this entire network of supporting companies, of consultancies that are, are guiding resellers that are pushing customers into it, uh, and ISVs, independent software vendors, that are building applications that are riding on top of platforms and other applications. Uh, the, the cloud really is the engine of the technology industry now, uh, to the point of where companies don't even think about the analog models. They are launching directly into the cloud, and you have legacy companies that are finding their way, they're transitioning and making their play to become more cloud-like, or at least service-like. Um, something that doesn't get a whole lot of attention or a whole lot of discussion, at least in channel circles, is the details of the cloud revenue model. Now, cloud computing, like services, is sold on recurring revenue models or subscription-based models. Pick your choice on how you want to describe it. But it really is about driving consumption and, and having customers pay for that consumption on a recurring basis. Uh, how that revenue gets recognized, what's the accounting for it, um, what is the difference between bookings and actual cash or what you can recognize as cash and how customers buy cloud credits and use those credits, this is all the stuff of general accounting practices. And as everyone here probably will agree with me, there's nothing sexier than accounting, I think. Um, but it's a necessary topic. And so we thought we'd dive into that in this episode of getting the ins and outs of cloud revenue recognition. And can't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than our guest today, Ross Brown. He is the Senior Vice President of North America Cloud Ecosystem Partners at Oracle. Uh, but he's more than that. I mean, Ross has been around the industry for a long time. I mean, he is truly one of the pillars of the channel community as well as the technology uh, community. He's held senior positions in channels and technology at companies like Microsoft and VMware and Citrix in EI security. Uh, and he's worked for several consulting firms as well as being a serial entrepreneur himself. Uh, and you know, if you want an intelligent conversation about channels and about technology models, Ross Brown's the guy to go to. So with that, Ross Brown, welcome to Changing Channels. Thanks, Larry. Good to be here. Hey, good to have you here. Ross, Let's before we get into re, you know, cloud revenue or what is cloud revenue, let's just talk about how vendors like Oracle make money in the cloud. And it, there's a lot of conventional wisdom on this. That, and as I said in the introduction, you know, we treat cloud as akin to a recurring revenue or a subscription model, right? Is that you, the customers sign up for something, they just keep paying on a monthly or annualized basis. 
Is it that simple? I mean, is it that's the foundational element of the cloud revenue model, or is there more to this story? Well, you know, I'm going to give a quote from uh, one of my former CEOs when I was at Microsoft. Steve Ballmer used to get the question all the time of, why is Microsoft licensing so complex? Why don't you just make it easier? And he looked at this part and said, how about $2,500 per employee per year? You can have everything Microsoft makes without limitation. The guy looks at this, well, I don't need everything. I don't, don't need biz talk. I don't need commerce server. And he goes, well, now it's going to get complicated. So a similar thing happens in the cloud where in the licensing world, you're dealing with entitlements. And so it's really about what rights do you have? How much rights do you have? Those sorts of things. In the cloud world, you're really dealing about consumption and access to that consumption. And the nuances in it, in one level, it is very simple. There is a pay-go model where you can come on there and see a, you know, our ARM service is a penny per core per month, uh, per, you know, per, per hour, right? So if you run a penny per core per hour, you run 750 hours at $7.50 for an ARM server for one core for the month. Very straightforward. However, we sell out ARM servers. We're getting such high demand for it that a lot of customers want reserved instances or capacity reservations or other things that say, I actually want to know that it's going to be there and not take a risk that you guys are, you know, demand is outstripped capacity because of popularity and those sorts of things. So then you start dealing with, you know, rights to access, which starts making it look like a license as opposed to just straight consumption. So there's a lot of nuance in it that generally is really about adapting to the customer's use case. And in almost all cases, Pago is a much more profitable model for us, but it's less predictable. And less predictable for us means where should we put servers when we get the next shipment of, you know, AMD Epic chips in and are starting to put them on cards and put them in racks and stuff like that. Where should we put them in Frankfurt or Japan? Well, that's somewhat dependent on where people have put capacity reservations and told us they're going to need them because if we just went off Pago, we'd run out all the time. So most of the variations and what makes it complex, and I'm assuming we'll get into some of this complexity, what yeah. makes it complex is trying to meet the customer's use case and needs. And not all customers are the same. Some people... You know, their workloads run flat out bare metal 24 hours a day. Those people need dedicated bare metal servers. Other people have event-driven serverless things that pop up and run an IoT application for 10 seconds a day. Okay, don't need a dedicated server. Even spinning up and spinning down a VM is too much work in those cases. So a lot of it has to do with service features combined with use case leads to complexity and billing. And it's the complexity. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and look, and it's the complexity of billing that precipitated this conversation. So everyone, right. the reason why I reached out to Ross is because Ross reached out to me is he was taking a survey Chalonomics was, was conducting. We are asking about revenue because we, when we're surveying companies, we want to know where to put them, what bin to put them into. And he came back and he goes, well, how do you want me to count it? And yeah. I, and I think that this Ross is really the crux of this because you raised an issue and I, and I'm like, I hadn't really thought about it that way is that you're not just selling on what it is, what it is your, what the customer's buying or what capacity they're buying or what use case they're buying, but you're also buying on terms and that right. it could be pay as you go. It can be a annual, it could be a multi-year. And in fact, you vendors really love those multi-year contracts. Right. So how do you, what does it mean to actually recognize cloud revenue? So let's start with some accounting concepts first, and then we'll get into the cloud concepts, because I think the Federal Accounting Standards Board really drives how a lot of the core revenue rec works, and then it becomes, how do I want to structure this deal, and then how does that flow into the rev rec? So a couple of terms. 
the, the booked revenue generally is where we've contracted with a customer for a given term for a given amount of money to provide a set of services. Now in the cloud, we do this with this thing called universal credits. And so someone comes to us and says, well, based on the workloads I'm intending to put over there and what we've scoped it as, we're going to buy $10 million worth of universal credits and spend them over two years. Okay. And they might size that. Now, most customers undercommit. They don't overcommit. They commit to kind of what they think is a minimum case to get to a good enough discount, but also mm -hmm. not overcommitting to a point where they're like, hey, we might get to the end of this and still have some gas left in the tank. So it's a little bit like the, uh, I'm going to use car analogies a lot because it's an easy way to understand it, but yeah. it's a little bit like prepaid gas tank on the, on the Hertz. It's like you want to come back empty. Like you want to be rolling in on fumes, not half a tank. So that's kind of their goal is to underspend and fill it up as they go along. So that um, that is the booked revenue. And then we recognize that as it's consumed. And so that's, you know, we measure and meter all the consumption going on. So the customer on their bill will see, you've got $10 million with UC credits that you prepaid for. And we'll talk about prepaid versus build and all that other stuff in a moment. But let's say we've committed to this as committed revenue. You paid for it or received the cash or whatever, because the cash really doesn't matter. I'll explain. Because once you have enough capital on the side, it's really about the accounting. So you've got the bookings that you've recognized as a contracted or contracted bookings. Then the consumption that occurs in that time period, that consumption is the actual recognized revenue from a gap standpoint. That's what we consider our top line revenue, right? Then you have the cost of delivery associated with it. And that's our COGS and all that stuff, which leads to gross operating profit. Now, the delta between the contracted bookings and consumed to date is what's called remaining performance obligation. Now, RPO comes out of Sarbanes-Oxley. It's not a cloud term, but that's, we have a contract. We've agreed to deliver $10 million worth of computing services. They've consumed six. We have a remaining performance obligation of $4 million to go do. Now, what happens at the end of the contract if the RPO still has a balance on it and it runs out of time and a time limited one? Well, from an accounting standpoint, we recognize it as 100% profit. It's just straight top line revenue with no cogs. So no customer really wants us to have that kind of windfall. That's why they undercommit. And we, we also aim for that because we actually want them to consume it because consumable services are sticky. Getting that windfall of 100% wrecked revenue with no cogs on it, that ain't ever repeating. That's going to be an angry customer is then going to lower their commit, lower their spend, go, well, I'm going to move off Oracle or reduce my, move everything back over here. Wait, man. We just want them to be happy. So our general goal is to make sure they spend out their contract before they run to the end of it, for sure. And, you know, one of the big things about our partnering approach is when I go to partners, I talk to them about, you know, not just which customers are you in that we could go work in together, but which customers are we already in where I've got an outstanding RPO and you're already certified to work in that environment. So I already have prepaid credits that this customer needs to consume. That's a that's not a come sell with us. That's a, hey, do you think you could do some work over here and, and get paid for it? And in most cases, that's really the customer wants to hire them to do that and stuff. But it's a lot of ours is about connecting partner to customer to drive down the RPO. So that gets that term of what you think of as, you know, so-and-so did a $100 million cloud deal. That's contracted bookings. Oracle reports X billion in revenue. That's recognized revenue of what was consumed in that quarter. And then like our last quarter, we, I think it was $61 billion RPO outstanding across all of Oracle's cloud properties and contracts. And so RPO could be quite large, but that's kind of how many years by 
you know, average contract length and, you know, typical number of customers in it and stuff like that. But those are the main terms is contracted bookings, recognized revenue, and RPO. So uh, uh, mind you, everybody, I warned you, this was not going to be a sexy conversation. <laughs> we can make it sexy. Hold on. Let me yeah. get a hat on. <laughs> right. that yeah, that <laughs> really helped. <laughs> um, it does. Look, I understand what Gap says. And, right. and and I still curse the earth that Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, and of course, when you refer to Sarbanes-Oxley, it's the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2003. And I still curse the earth that they walked on when they wrote that law. Um, <laughs> yeah. For various reasons, we could get into an entire different conversation. But it does seem rather confusing because you do the the numbers do swirl around. Um, and particularly when you're talking about this this RPO. You know, which a lot of you know in the in the cloud uh, parlance, it gets referred to as credits. How does that yeah. credit help you if 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 you're if they're buying this from you up front, or they're negotiating a price for a discount based on what their consumption is going to be, and they're not using it? How does selling somebody else's product or service into your cloud help you? Well, you're talking about marketplace and using credits there, uh, yeah, third parties, right? Stuff. It, because, it yeah. Does it so let me be really clear. Uh, it does in the sense that it creates a solution construct on your cloud that solves a customer problem. So it's a service thing. But to be clear, you can't spend 100% of your credits in the marketplace. Like most clouds have a limit of 20 or 30% of your credits can actually be spent on third-party products. And that has to do with, you know, what the cost to that third party is versus what margin is retained for being in the marketplace. And as marketplaces have gotten, you know, thinner margins on them, it's become less of a, hey, this is a big, you know, driver for us financially. And it's not, it's much more of a service play of, it's far easier for me to get like a Palo Alto next generation firewall deployed if it's just grab it and put it in there and it goes on the same bill. So think of it more as convenience than anything else, but it's not a, like we want to sell our core, you know, PaaS and IaaS services at scale and stuff. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is not all cloud services have similar margins. Um, and this is a really interesting thing when it gets to burning down credits and whatnot is it's way in our interest for customers to use higher value services like AI and ML engines or chatbots or, you know, a, you know, application express low code environments or analytic solutions or, you know, databases and things like that, because, the values in the software, not in the commodity element under it. Whereas you were just selling bare metal servers or storage or whatnot, margins aren't as great, right? So the trick in the cloud is not to just go out and get them to move workloads into it as VMs running on storage, but to then build, build, build higher value services and higher value things. Now, the trade-off on that is you can lock them in, right? And that's one of the things that we do is we have this policy that all of our open source projects in OCI are canonically compatible with the original open source project. So there's no lock-in, right? But you still want those high value services. So it's a trade-off between how do I make it easy, fast, simple, and make it convenient to consume while also making it safe and not a you know, dead-end cul-de-sac and those things. But you know, the, the really, I, I think there's an implied question you're saying where it's confusing, which is this is really confusing if you're coming from a sales culture, which is winning a deal. Right. Like, what does winning a deal mean in this context? Like, if I go out and win a $10 million two-year cloud deal, that's a good mid-sized deal. It's not, you know, $100 million type, you know, global deal type thing, but a good, you know, bread and butter cloud deal, which seems like a very large deal relative to, you know, channel histories that I have and stuff like that. But that's the nature of 
getting the whole of IT budget because you've chosen a cloud provider versus just a workload that you're going after. And so let's say you go, you know, win this thing. And so the sales rep signs the deal, get a commitment for 10 million, you know, universal credits and whatnot. Is it time for the steak dinner and the, you know, big wine celebration and stuff like that? Yeah, kind of, but it's like starting to date. That's the beginning of the sales process. Now there's a whole build process of how do we get partners and design engineers and enterprise cloud architects in there as fast as possible to start driving the consumption of this. And that's really the main goal is, um, let's say, say this way, both for the customer to start consuming, to get value out of it, lower their costs, but also for the seller, because most of their comp plans aren't triggered on heavy on bookings. Like there's a small component tied to winning the big contract. And I'll explain the buy pressure that comes there to answer that question. But it's really the pressure from the seller to go to consume it that's a big part of it. And the pressure on the customer to say, I want to start consuming this as early as possible because of the benefits, but also I have an obligation to it. Now, if I go and overcommit, let's say I get a really good salesperson in there who is very charming, talked very, very pretty about all the future things and you know made me forget that IT projects are difficult and now that thing goes perfectly and all the other stuff and ends up overcommitting. Well, what ends up happening then is you get to the end of it and there is a big pressure to consume. And so competitively, that's an advantage for that cloud platform. And we run into this and it's an advantage and it's a warning sign. So I got to unpack this in a very careful way. It's an advantage in the sense that we get customers who come to us and say, you know, we really like what you guys are doing, but it's going to be another 18 months before we can do anything with you because we've already bought all these credits on this other cloud. And we got to use them like we won't get the budget back unless we use them. So at least for the next 18 months, we got to do the all you can eat buffet over here on this other cloud. But as soon as that's up, we'll come over. Now, what's the effect of that? One, we're delayed by 18 months before we can do anything with that customer because they've locked up their budget and did a budget grab. But there's another thing there, which is that customer is clearly not happy at being manhandled this way and being forced to do this. And you know, I was telling you earlier about our interconnect question that we have. This is a great example of gap accounting and whatnot. Number one question we get with Azure customers to turn on the Oracle interconnect, where we have a great partnership with them to move data back and forth. First question is, can I use Azure credits on Oracle Cloud? The answer is no. That's not the way gap accounting works. You committed to that cloud. You got to spend them there. So when you're done with that, do it. Now, what we know, though, is at the end of those contracts, they never renew as much as they originally did. It ends up coming down in their renewal and they end up spending on other clouds. So it's delayed, not prevented. And that's kind of the problem is it gives them a window of 18 months to go figure out how to make the customer super happy so that they don't end up moving that stuff. And that's usually you're in a hole at that point, you know? You know, thinking about what you just said about you have to spend credits on the cloud you bought them on. I'm pretty sure Sam Bankman Fried would figure out a way of using crypto to solve that problem. I yeah, let's just... not go... <laughs> <laughs> no role modeling that guy. No, but it's as you were talking about this, though, it occurred to me that we actually have a model that there's that a lot of experience in, and when that's in the public sector, public sector procurement, the way the yeah. federal government does wide area <clears throat> contracts. Um, yep. And and mind you, I will say this is that I hate public sector channels because of those contracting <laughs> rules and the way GSA manages procurement. But it is just a lot. It, it creates a lot. And when the government does one of those GWACs, a government wide area contract, what they're doing is they're not giving you $10 billion. I know that like oh, Oracle's up there. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a license to hunt. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you well, just it's have a license to hunt, but it's two things. And it's really important. It's two things. It's a license to hunt and it's a budget authorization, meaning the procurement process goes much, much, much faster. So, you know, we do a couple of these like the state of California and New York and places like that with partners where there is a, you know, it is a little bit like the Comstock gold rush when the thing opens, because there's a number of partners that are set up to provide against it. And there is a, there's only this amount of money and whoever eats it first, eats it first. Right. And once it's out, it's out. And so I do like those contracts because it does create a, there's not a, I won this and I just have to at the end deliver everything in order to get my money. Like some of the federal contracts, this is a, it's off at the races and let's go create value. Yeah. Rossi, well, let's, let's come back to something you were talking about is, you know, the, the pay as you go. One of the things that I've seen is, and, and in fact, it's not hard to find. You go on Reddit, you can see the pain a lot of cloud consumers or the consumers of, of cloud-based applications that they talk right. about, particularly in monitoring network performance management and the, um, the I, uh, ITSM. They're out there talking about, well, they can only afford to run so much. The, the pricing models are all variable. Each application, yeah. it will be based on whether it's based on the number of gigs consumed or the number of scans conducted or the number. You know, and you can go through a myriad of this entire matrix of pricing and based on consumption. Why isn't it? Why is it that complicated when you're describing it as at least within your context of delivering infrastructure or even infrastructure with applications that it can have more of a fixed predictable cost to the customer as well as revenue to the vendor? So this is where it's going to seem like a setup for a vendor pitch, but I promise I, I would stay out of that. But let me just tell you that I agree. There is a nickel and diming aspect to the cloud. Uh, and it's really the reason it was set up that way isn't malicious, but it ends up being a wealth transfer effect from enterprise to startup. Um, so, for example, I'm, I'm going to pick on AWS because they're the biggest, but it's the same on the other two guys. It's really easy to get started. Like on AWS, if you want to spin up a new instance, you just open up an EC2 instance connected to S3 you know, object storage, put Elastic Container on top of it, and you're off and running. You can set up a container-based app and deliver it. The minute you want to put that into production, though, you've got to turn on managed NAT gateways, firewalls, intrusion prevention, observability and management solutions. And the minute you turn on those things that make it run as an actual working app, you've doubled the cost of that tenancy. And because those things are optional, when you turn them on, it changes your bill. Like how much you know, log analytics did you do? How much intrusion events occurred? How much traffic went through the gateway? And so one of the things we did at Oracle, because, our, you know, as we mentioned prior to jumping on camera here, we are an enterprise cloud. We made all of those tools free. They're just included in the cost of the tenancy. So our bills are radically simpler because this is a real effect of I cannot predict what my bill is going to be based on the variability of consumption that's occurring, as well as the variability of adoption of services, like how much of a given service I turned on and off. So Reducing that variability, but we also wanted to remove, like as an enterprise cloud, I never wanted a customer to go, hey, we got hacked because we forgot to turn on, you know, IPS or forgot to turn on CloudGuard. Well, it's free. Turn it on. There's no charge for it, right? So that's kind of a key thing is there was a design. If your cloud is designed for startups, there is a everything's optional and you add it on. And I think there's a lot of pushback from customers, which is why we designed it the way we did of everything's included. And that way... You know, your cost for compute is your cost for compute, and you can calculate what it is. Yeah. I, I will tell you, there is very large businesses out there like the Duckbill Group with Corey Quinn and, you know, a bunch of other folks that are building software that are just like Tango and guys like that are just building 
cloud economic analytics platforms to try to get a hold of it. And it is in many customers sneaking up as a really large data set problem of how to analyze these bills because and some of these services are doing per microsecond or per transaction bills. I'll argue for any Fortune 500 company, there is no human way to look at an AWS bill. You have to use machine learning and machine intelligence to really bring it apart, unless you're a very mono, you know, monolithic application structure like Netflix. Netflix can probably figure out their bill because it's you know preference engines spinning out choices and running a UX and then everything else is through a CDN. Okay, pretty simple. Not the same thing for like GM, right? Yeah. No, I hear what you're saying on this, and I, I, I really wish it was more simple. And you're, you know, one of the things that you know, you probably saw this as well. IDC over the summer came out with a with a report, a guidance saying 71% of enterprises are repatriating their cloud workloads because of, among other things, expenses. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and it does seem though is that. It, that does seem to be the game as well. You talk about it's not malicious the way the cloud model was built, at least from a pricing and cost structure, but it ends up being that way. And yet we still have on the, you know, come to your title, ecosystem, is mm -hmm. that the entire driver on ecosystems now is to get more layers of applications in the cloud. And if you talk with the other providers, is that that's what their game is, is that the more applications that are running on their VMs, the more their bills go up or their bill, you know, their billable potential goes up. So how, what role should the ISV community, you know, what role do they play in driving the pricing and the revenue recognition? You know, how do their activities actually influence or impact the way that you think about revenue recognition or the way the customer recognizes pricing? So uh, this is a great, there's a multi-part answer to this. So let me <laughs> bring it apart for a second. So, I, I expect no less from you, Ross. Okay, but okay, <laughs> let's take ISVs that are running as a SaaS solution. So running as a SaaS solution in the cloud is tremendously efficient if it's architected the right way. Like when I look at the cost to serve an EBS, let's take it 100 EBS customers with, you know, you'll get to an average workload size for their enterprise ERP system. And you look at moving those in the cloud, I can tell you on average, they're about 250 to 300 K of annual consumption just to run one instance of ERP. The cost to deliver that and the cost of the servers and all that other stuff, eh, it, over time it comes in 30, 40%. So you've still got all the other delivery costs, people and all the other stuff, but you get to reasonable sort of 50% margins over time. When you look at the cost to deliver that as a SaaS service, it starts moving to 90% margins because you're dealing with common infrastructure, common code, common executions, common models across the whole thing. So having people move and ISVs move to a SaaS platform on OCI and then move their customers from running an individual on-prem instances or running in an individual tendency to running in SaaS, my cost goes down like dramatically. Now, in my SaaS applications, that's hugely profitable. If you're an ISV buying from me, my cost goes down, which means your cost goes down. So you become more profitable. So it's an attractive thing for them to do it. And, and it doesn't consume as much power and it doesn't consume me as we actually are concerned about environmental impact as well. Like how do you become more efficient at delivering all this stuff? Not just what's the most uh, economically attractive way to deliver it. So that's one looking at that of how do you go from running in tenancy to running in SaaS as being an efficiency play that helps lower bills for everybody involved. Even if you're running in that on, you know, individual bespoke sort of way, it's it's still in the interest to move to the cloud as long as you don't have, like we were just talking about with everything is nickel and diming, it gets very expensive because 
you know, most, this is hard to say without it being sort of like a competitive slap, but let me be clear. Most cloud architectures are 15 years old now, right? They're not set up for efficiency. And so we're starting to see trying to force stateful performant applications into a stateless model actually introduces costs around how you have to secure, manage, and contain it. That unless you can run it as a stateless database and run it as a high performant, you know, containerized microservices architecture, egress costs and all the other stuff start eating you alive. So I think there's a sort of the way the cloud is architected right now was somewhat based on a spend, spend, spend model, not a, does this make economic sense? And I don't know that as we're shifting with the global economy shifting towards, hey, maybe we should look at saving some money as opposed to just growing as fast as we can as a, every company is digital, let's innovate. That's shifting. Now, opinions on economic value shift faster than architectures can. And so that's kind of the challenge a lot of clouds have is can they shift their architecture to meet the needs of be more efficient and be less expensive as opposed to be faster and be more innovative. That's a big shift coming. Yeah. It might be Ross, filling up in stock already. <laughs> look, one of the things that you and I've talked about, and yeah. I find, I find this interesting because as a, as a consumer of technology, um, yeah. well, let me step back and say one of the things that I have I've said frequently over the years is that if we sold cars the way we sell technology, nobody would be able to drive because right. if, if we as an industry, we force the customer to build their car. Oh, hold on. I'm going to break this metaphor for you. We do sell cars that way. We do. And I'll explain. I'm okay. going to twist for a little bit. Uber is Pago. And I don't mean Uber's Pago in the cloud. I mean, Uber is the ultimate Pago. I need a car to get me from here to there right now. And once I'm out of that car, I don't want to be accountable for it anymore. Oh, okay. So look, to torture the analogy, torture the analogy yeah. though, is that if you're in an Uber, you're not driving. Uh, fair. That's a managed yeah. service and all the other stuff. Right, right. Avis, Avis is your capacity reservation. Right. I need a car for a month. I don't know when I'm going to be in it. I don't know when I'm going to be using it. I need it for a month. Now, my per mile cost is a lot lower in that Avis than it is in the Uber by a mile because it's predictable. My monthly cost is way higher, depending on how much I Uber, because it might make sense just to rent a car, right? So there's this this notion where we, I'm just reacting to this notion about oh, no, know, no, it's, we please. don't buy cars that way. And I think it's, it's really true. We don't sell components of cars, but we do have people that self-drive. We do have people that are driven places. We have taxis. And then we have very efficient, very large things that are the equivalent of SaaS platforms called trains that take everybody to the same destination, right? So, if, you know, I, I just, I think there is a much more flexibility possible in the model than is currently there, but that's architecturally and economically limited by the constraints of the companies. And I hate to say it, in many cases, those constraints are EPS defense, not is it worth doing? You know what I mean? Right. Like if you're coming from a very high profitability model, it's a long way before you reach the pain point of we have to change. But it. The point I was getting to is that what you had, you and I had been talking about is that it, it, that's the nirvana for me, is that I hit an app, Uber shows up, takes me somewhere, go to the airport, yeah. I get a car, right? The truth, what you were saying, though, is that clouds are built, they're not, they're not sold. Is yeah, you built, you, Right, yeah. right. So how do you, as a, as a driver of a channel business, uh, of a cloud business, have any sense of what your predictability or what you could forecast to be revenue if you're out there building a cloud for a customer based on their use case and their and whatever their unique scenario is versus just giving them the same stamped out repeatable instance? 
So uh, first off, building flexibility into service. So this is kind of this notion of primitives, and this is kind of a really core cloud concept of if you build differentiated underlying primitives. So as we talked about prior off camera, the ability to deliver bare metal as a service opens up not only the ability to deliver bare metal, but the ability to deliver VMs, serverless, all that stuff in the same architecture. So having a differentiated core primitive means you can have more variations on it, right? Being able to put more intelligence into it also allows you to have a little more flexibility. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by 15 year olds old versus modern cloud. Like in the beginning in the cloud, it was really important to structure VMs into standard instances sizes. So this is a one processor, two processor, four processor, eight, 16 with a quart, you know, six gigs or eight gigs of memory per, you know, processor as it scales up. That was to fit a bin packing algorithm. How do we make sure that we're not wasting space on a server so that we've got units of VMs that can go together like standardized Lego blocks and run in the same server and migrate them in the right place? Why? Because it was an efficient way of doing things at the beginning. But it was also because you didn't have much intelligence about what those customers were doing and how to migrate them. The systems tools weren't as good. You had a little bit of, uh, you know, I would call it friction and movement. It wasn't as easy in the beginning. So I'm not going to say that we're smarter. We just had time to spend 15 years looking at this where on Oracle, you come on there, you just pick your platform, say I want AMD or I want Intel or I want ARM, and then tell me how many processors and how much memory. And you can create any custom size you want. And you can change it on the fly coming in February and scale it up and down. So the whole thing behind it is the cloud has gotten a lot smarter because core underlying primitives are being engineered in a different way that's enabling a simplification of the architecture. So like this is one of my favorite things about Amazon is there are 19 ways to run containers on AWS, some of which are really clearly what AWS intended and some of which are really boneheaded ways to run containers. But there are 19 possible ways to run containers. On Does anyone need all 19 of them? No. Should we deprecate any one of them? Well, we're going to break a bunch of customers if we do. So time builds complexity. The architectural decisions you made early because of limitations in hardware builds complexity. And so I, I think there's a wave of simplifying cloud so it's easier to consume because of better primitives that leads to radically simpler you know, services. Like a lot of the complexity is just time and, and good intentions building up on top of each other instead of architectural control. Ross, I want to bring this back to where we started so we can close out on a close close the circuit on closing out here because we started off talking about whether or not cloud, the cloud business model, the revenue model isn't truly analogous to recurring revenue. Yeah. And you've been around the business for a while as you know and, and, and as, as i said in the intro i mean you really have your you're one of the pillars of the channel today what would you give what advice would you give to one of your peers because there are many of your peers are now just starting this process they're exploring how do they build their cloud businesses or how do they transform their models to adapt to the cloud error what advice do you give them to manage this process and, and to find their way Okay, it's hard. So I'm going to tell you, this is not easy advice. This is hard advice. Um, one of the challenges, and this is going to date me badly here for a second, so I'll just go ahead and just tell people I was 12 when this happened. I wasn't paying attention to this. I just know what happened. In 1981, a guy named Seymour Marin, uh, he wrote Soft Letter, one of the original you know, channel publications out there. He put out this article that talked about the Valley of Death. And he said, it's impossible to run a high value service oriented business on the same P&L 
as a gross margin times turns business, which is a transactional business. It says you're either going to optimize towards turns, which means you're going to shorten your service cycle, or you're going to optimize towards services, which means you're going to kill your turns and your gross margin. So trying to run them on the same PL has been a nightmare for everyone since the dawn of time. And you watch companies acquire services, companies who come from the transactions, and then eventually the services part gets dissolved because the way it's measured on its PL is against the rubric of you know turns times inventory times margin. You know, that that that's a tough one to crack through. The ones that have done it really well have done it by making a subsidiary and saying, this is going to be our cloud group. And all they do is build. They are built by the hour. They're architects. They go into customers and say, let's talk about the problems. Let's talk about how to solve them. They don't. And this is the annoying thing for me. I'm a 30-year channel guy. They don't represent me. I work with them. I'm the platform they're going to deploy on. I'm a supplier to them. Hmm. I'm not their vendor leading the sale and they're coming in to, no, they're the person that customer chose to build. I'm having a, why choose OCI instead of Azure, instead of AWS with the partner in the same way as a supplier to a general contractor building an office building. I'd be talking about why buy my glass instead of those guys, right? It's really about performance and capability and ease of work and long-term fit. And then we get into the economics of it, of what's the things we're going to do. And the interesting thing for me is, and this is going to sting a little bit for some of the audience, but when I go talk to traditional channel partners who are trying to get in the channel business and they ask me about vendor programs, they want to know about rebates. They want to know about what's the part I get for recommending you. When I go talk to these build-oriented partners, they want to know what's available for their customer to accelerate build not margin for them. It's like, do you have money available to pay me to go build this? Because then I can do twice as much in the time period because I can put more people on this. Their billable rates, their billable rates, their billable rate. It's not like this is going to their bottom line as margin. It just takes budget pressure off the customer to adopt faster. And we do those. And the reason we do those is because what's the name of the game? Going back to the beginning, not booking the deal, driving consumption. And so this is such a driver for us. And I, I do want to tell you one thing that's really interesting here is most people coming from an infrastructure practice and they look at it and say, you know, my business has been, you know, top rack switches or servers or bottom of rack storage and those sorts of things. And I want to get into the cloud. They think it's about migration. I'm going to help my customers get to the cloud. Let me just disabuse of everyone of that right away. There is very little money in migration. It's typically funded. If you're a Google or AWS partner, there's funded migrations. We do some funded migrations, but the reality is because you and I talked off camera about this, we have a bit of a different cloud with bare metal. We do migrations for customers for free. We do this thing called cloud lift services because most of our migrations can be done because we're going bare metal to bare metal, VM to VM, container to container, it can be done in weeks. Partners tell us like on our best day, we make five to 10 points on migrations. Doing analytics warehouses and building lake houses and data master data management models, 30, 40 points of margin on every build hour. Building machine learning applications, 100% margin. Like whatever our billing rate is, profit on top of is exactly, I guess that's 50% margin, 100, depending on how you want to cut the analysis, like contribution is, or not. Math is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's it's that thing where the profitability is on building value, not moving things. And so the traditional infrastructure partners like, hey, I want to get into this. I'm going to go after the cloud. They look at it and like, well, this is turning out to be a horrible business. I don't know why people are in the cloud because they're trying to do what they were doing on-prem in the cloud, as opposed to 
I need to hire developers. I need to hire machine learning architects. I need to hire folks who can know analytics, who can build lake houses, who are DBAs, who can do master data management as a service or data fabrics or data flows, who can set up IoT data planes and gather all this thing and be able to work with it and build programmed responsive systems that can manage it. Now, that side of it, I'll tell you for the partners that have built that, who did lead that way, Kind of the funniest part of my job is I work with all the global SIs and I work with regional SIs and I work with Metro partners. Every GSI out there is asking me, who should we buy? There is a war for capacity right now. If you look at, like, I'll just pick on Accenture. Like when I last blinked when I was at VMware, Accenture was 400,000 people. There's 770,000 people now. They're, when you put contractors in there, they go over a million. Uh, all of these folks were acquiring regional value-added partners, and they all have something in common, which is they focused on a vertical, they got really good about the problems in that vertical, and they built. They built, they built, they built. They hired developers, they hired architects, they hired DBAs. Those people are all super expensive. They are not your you know, 125K, your total OTE, I'm a top rack neck, uh, Cisco engineer coming and plugging things in. They are quarter million dollar a year developers who are gold. And they cost a lot and they bill a lot and they're worth every penny in margin. And so the hard part for a lot of partners is how do I make the leap from a thin margin business that's vendor dependent to this capital intensive high service margin business when I don't have any experience in it. I don't have the capital structure to be able to do it. And I don't really know the people or the processes around it, how to run those practices differently. And so that's kind of a challenge I'll tell you is set it up as a subsidiary experiment don't risk your core business in it set it up and know that it's never going to be about the transition from infrastructure to infrastructure it's about build well ross i'm sorry we're gonna to have to leave it there it's i could <laughs> sure like, no you know and you know what is is people i've had conversations like this with ross where we can talk for hours ross we're definitely going to have you back um and this really uh, this by the way larry next time we're going to deal with a bottle of writer's tears or something. This is the driest conversation you and I have ever had. <laughs> it truly has been. <laughs> Ross Brown, the Ross Brown, the senior vice president of North America cloud ecosystem partners at Oracle. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate it. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of changing channels. I, again, I want to thank our guest, Ross Brown, the senior vice president of North America cloud ecosystem partners at Oracle. And I want to thank you for joining us here again at Changing Channels. Uh, technology is changing the world around us and that technology gets to market through channels. And that's what we do here at Channelomics. We help the world build better channels. Keep checking in with us. If you like what we're doing, smash the like button, subscribe to this channel, check out our other podcasts in the margins uh, and all the other stuff that we have posted on Channelomics. Until next time, I'm Larry Walsh. Thank you for joining Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, a production of Channelnomics. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends. For more information about Channelnomics services and insights, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and check out our website at channelnomics.com. Channelnomics is a registered trademark of, and Changing Channels is copyright by, 2112 Enterprises, LLC.